0: Will you join me in prayer? Holy God, you created each of us to live in community with with one another. And Lord, we are grateful for that gift. And God, as we gather as a community to open your word right now, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what you have for us. And God, I ask that you would take my words and use them for your kingdom. We pray these things in your name. Amen. One of my favorite sermon stories comes out of Acts chapter 20. The, the Apostle Paul is preaching in a place, uh, his last sermon, in, in, in a place that he had visited often in a coastal community in Turkey called Troas. It, it was a community that was, that was well known, so he had passed through, he had built up a, a relationship with this, this church community. And during his last visit, he's preaching one of those sermons. You know the sort of sermon that I'm talking about. Where he goes on and on and on. And right when you think he's done, he goes on some more and on. I know I preach them every once in a while, so I, I know I, I know what those sermons mean. And, and, and he looks up, it's late at night, it's almost midnight, and he, he looks up and he's preaching in a, in a building that has windows around it, and he sees a young man sitting in the window, kind of dozing. And the young man gets tired, he closes his eyes, and he falls out of the window. He falls out of the window and hits his head. And Paul comes down to him, and his friends say, "He's died, he's died, he's died." And Paul's response is, "Don't worry, there's still life in him." And then he goes back to preaching. Then he goes back to—it's this really funny story. He goes, he goes back to preaching, and his friends pick up the the man and and, and they go home rejoicing because his, this man is is alive. This man is alive. As a preacher, I've always found comfort. And knowing that the, if the apostle Paul put people to sleep, sometimes I'm, I'm in good company. Sometimes, sometimes I'm in good company. Most preachers know that at some point during during a sermon, at some point when we're we're giving a message, at least a few people tune out. So I, I can see there's a, there's a trick. I, I can see you all. I, I can tell when you're dozing off, and that's okay. It's okay. Sometimes I get bored while I'm preaching. So, so it, it happens while, while I'm preaching. So preachers can see when, when this happening. happening. Um, there's just so much going on in our lives, so many different thoughts going around in our head that we, we can't help but to allow it to happen. Uh, a couple of years ago... I should say a couple weeks ago, I was reading a study that was done a few years ago in in 2000, a study that was done by Microsoft, um, before we all had smartphones in our hands, before preachers were were preaching from tablets. And and, and the study found that the average attention span at that time, year 2000, was 12 seconds long. 12 12 seconds long. Today, just 20 years later, it is down to 8 seconds. Eight, eight seconds long. Now to give you kind of a frame of reference, the attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds. (laughs) Goldfish can pay attention better than adults today. So I've been talking for a little over a minute so far this morning. So whether you're on the 8 seconds or, or 12 seconds, or maybe you're you're very attentive and you're more at like the 15 or 20 second, you've already lost attention a couple times. I'm good with it. I'm good with it. Over the last couple of months, we've been journeying through the Sermon on the Mount and, and we're at this place in the sermon where I imagine those who are listening started kind of tuning out. J- Jesus had been talking for a while. He, he had been talking for a little bit and he, he had given kind of the beginning of the sermon. They, they had heard the rallying cry around the Beatitudes. They had heard the rallying cry around the Beatitudes. And they, they, they knew that Jesus was standing with them. He says, says, blessed are you, I, I, am, I am with you. They had been charged to be salt and light, to bring flavor and to radiate joy into their communities. And then Jesus opens the Scripture. He turns to Scripture. He gets to the stuff that most of us, or most of them, would have, would have grown up hearing. The, 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 the Bible, he opens the Bible, and, and maybe these things were things that they had grown up hearing, but it hadn't quite sunken in for them yet. There were lessons that they knew, but maybe lessons they weren't following or living into on a daily basis. So, so he starts by reminding them to keep first things first. He says, look, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to, to get rid of what the prophet said. I, I didn't come to throw it all out. What, what you were taught as a kid, what I was taught, I didn't come to throw that out. I came to bring it to life. I came to, to fulfill it. He, he Then he sets up this place where he, he talks through a, a few different commandments. And he says, whoever takes these commandments seriously will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever claims they're important, but doesn't quite follow them, they're in trouble. They're in trouble. But what are the commands that Jesus is talking about? What are they? These commands. These commandments. What? What, what is he talking about? Are they the Ten Commandments? Is it the 600 plus law of the Hebrew Scripture? Is it the command to love God and to, to love neighbor that he talks about elsewhere? What What is it? Is it something else? This is a place where if we're, we're not paying attention to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, if we doze off, we miss something very important. He, he turns to Six Commandments. He turns to six commandments, and this is where we, we, we get this idea of you've heard what it said, but I say to you, you've heard. He quotes scripture, and then he interprets it. He brings it to life. So he turns to a few important laws from scripture that his listeners would have been familiar with, and, and, and he unpacks them. And each of the law that he unpacks has to do with how we approach our life together, how we live as a community. These laws are a reminder to them and to us that we are, in fact, created to be in community with one another. So Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to thrive as a community, as we we launch into this this life together with his band of followers who are there during this message, if if we are going to thrive as a community, it is going to, to take some work. And then he unpacks it. He unpacks it. It makes me kind of think of the standards that, that Haley and I try to set for our house. If we want to have a healthy family, if we, we want to be on the same page with one another and with, with our kids, we have to talk about our priorities. We have to talk about the, the sort of goals that we have as a, a family, or else we won't be on the same page. And so Jesus is kind of trying to lay that foundation, trying to set those priorities so he selects a, a few laws from the Hebrew Scriptures and, and follows a, a particular formula, I think. Follows a, a particular formula where he says, You've heard what it said, the old command, but, but I say to you, you've heard these before. You maybe grew up hearing them. You, you've heard these before. You might have them memorized, but let's talk about what they mean. Let's bring them to life. And, and then he goes on to give these, these few kind of practical, creative steps of obedience of how we can live in to these commands. Our words and phrases really only become important. Our language only becomes important when we attach meaning to it. And so, so, so Jesus is attaching meaning, practical steps. To, to these laws that he's working to bring life toward, so we had this this funny moment in our house yesterday. Um, we had just gotten home from a, a morning where where I had all three kids at Thomas's baseball game. Haley was in the softball snack shack. And then I met Haley at the softball snack shack, and she took the kids to a birthday party. And I went home to kind of work on on my message for this this morning. And uh, they, they all got home. Piper, our youngest, went upstairs to go to sleep. And, and Thomas and Ella were doing what brothers and sisters do, kind of getting at each other, kind of just just nagging over and over again. And, and and at one point Haley said, Ella, you know what you're doing. Quit getting under your brother's skin. And she looked confused, Ella, seven. What does that mean? Uh, uh, Under his skin. And then Haley replied, it means that you keep poking him. I'm not even touching him. I'm not even touching him. This, this tense moment of our kids going back and forth at one another kind of turned into laughter because we realized we were talking past one another as we, we, we tried to talk through what we, were, what we were saying. Our language matters. And if we're not abundantly clear with what we mean, we just cause more confusion. We just cause more confusion. So Jesus turns to the Hebrew law and he says, we, we need to clarify a few things and they have to do with how we live our lives together. He starts with this. You have heard what it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool you'll be liable to the hell of fire comforting words Jesus takes this this extreme murder and says Moses was right you shouldn't murder but but there's more to it we we need to think about and talk about anger as well now notice that that Jesus isn't saying you can't get angry He's saying that the way we respond to our anger matters as we live our lives together. So in Matthew 18, Jesus is is talking with the apostles about how to handle conflict. It's as if he he knew that conflict was going to happen. Surprise, surprise. We get these 12 people together, there's going to be some conflict. And, And he instructs them to be honest and to be direct. Paul echoes the sentiment when he tells the church in Ephesus to, to not let the sun go down on their anger, to not make room for the devil. We all get angry. Raise your hand if you've never gotten angry. We all get angry. And the way that we handle our anger matters. It's, it's important. So, so Jesus says, even if you're in the middle of something important, goes on to say this, like, like making an offering at the temple or, or on your way to court, stop and seek reconciliation. Even if you're in the middle of something important, stop and seek reconciliation. So I know a couple of, of small churches that, that take this command so seriously that when they, they gather for communion together, like we do the first Sunday of every month, when they gather for communion together, they, they pause their worship service. They, they pause their worship service and they say, okay, we're going to take some time to, to get things straight. And so it would be like on a communion Sunday if I just said, alright, time out. Time out. Kathleen, you, you remember that time? I'm so sorry. For, for being angry with you. I'm, I don't know what time it was. but Or, or Ed, remember that time where I, I said those words that pastors aren't supposed to say? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They would, they would take time during their worship service to, to, to hit pause, to be reconciled with one another before they approach the Lord's table. Could you imagine what that would look like for us? Jesus doesn't ignore the reality that that we all get angry. But he does call us to respond to our anger honestly and quickly. To actually be what the Apostle Paul refers to as ambassadors of reconciliation. Then he he turns to an issue that was, was as difficult to talk about in his day as it is in ours. Adultery and divorce. A pastor who I respect and and often listen to said that there's one Sunday a year, one Sunday a year where he's confident he's going to tick off 90% of his congregation. The day he talks about marriage. Some would be angry with the things that he said about half the congregation. Half, the other half would be angry with the things that he didn't say. And so he just knows, he says, yet, yet Scripture talks about marriage a lot, so I'm going to talk about it, and I know that, that people are going to get angry with me for talking about it. Now, there's no wonder that Jesus talked about hang, handling anger before he talked about handling divorce and adultery. So before I say too much, I, I want to make a couple quick comments, two, maybe three quick comments. First, uh, these words... Jesus' words here have been taken out of context for a long, long time and have caused all kinds of damage. And secondly, we need to remember that God's grace is sufficient for absolutely everything. And thirdly, these are Jesus' words, not mine. I I didn't write this part of Jesus' sermon. You have heard what it was said. You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he continues. It was also said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then between these two kind of stinging hard comments, he uses this very graphic illustration where he says, if your right eye or your right hand causes you to sin, get rid of it. It's better to lose a part of your body than have the whole thing condemned. Jesus really is trying to say, hey, this is serious. This is serious. This is serious. And the damage of sin, it causes us to be hurt personally, but it also pulls at the fabric of our community. Again, he's talking about how we live with one another. But why why does he focus on the marital relationship? Why? As opposed to, to other things that pull at the fabric of our life together. Why, why include it? Why? The best answer I can come up with, or really a a answer that a friend of mine came up with, is I was saying, I have to say this on Sunday. I have to talk about this on Sunday. How would, how would you talk about it? He's a pastor. And his response was, well, two words, covenantal fidelity. It's the idea that God created us to be in relationship with one another, that God takes that commitment seriously, that God takes God's commitment to us, the covenant, seriously enough to give us an example of how that covenant should look. And anything that tears that apart grieves God's heart. So when Moses gives the law and mentions divorce, and when, when Jesus included it's in, includes it in his list here, they're acknowledging that there are times and places where our hearts are hardened, where sin creeps in, where we fail, where we fall short. We can't pretend that sin doesn't exist we can't try to cover it up or or somehow remain above it all and at the same time if we remember back to a a story i mentioned a couple weeks ago as jesus said to the religious authorities of his day who who brought a woman who was caught in adultery to to jesus's feet and he says hey if if any of you are without sin you, you throw the first stone We're reminded in that moment that that none of us is perfect. That all have sinned. And all of that sin that pulls apart at our community, that pulls apart at our relationships, it grieves God's heart. And at the same time, God's grace is sufficient. Jesus continues. Again, you have heard what it was said. To those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, don't swear at all. Now, in, in Old Testament, there are places where God's people would make a commitment or, or make a pledge either to God or to one another. And uh, they tack on a phrase, something along the lines today, we might say, with, with God is my witness. And then they would go on and make that vow. In Jesus' day, the the religious elite, they had set up a system to try to determine the the type of commitments that were legit and the type of commitments that that weren't binding. So, So one rabbi might interpret it and say, well, if you swear by Jerusalem, you aren't bound by whatever vow that was. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, lawyer language, right, Ron? It means something totally different. And then they would debate whether by or toward was was legit. The the oaths, the words that were used became a sticking point, and so Jesus says, Look, look, let let's let's get rid of deceit altogether. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Let's be a community of people where our, our yes does mean yes, where our no does mean no. We can be honest with one another. Anything else is from the evil one. Now, as a pastor in a denomination that takes vows and creeds and and confessions and statements of faith very seriously, Jesus' words here, they kind of have caused me to pause a bit. I I took ordination vows. Any of you who have been ordained as an elder or as a deacon also took ordination vows. So, So how do we... Justify what what Jesus says with the vows, with the oaths that that, that we make. It's it's a good question. It's a good question. What do we do with them? At the very least, Jesus' words here should make us kind of perk up and, and pay attention that when we make a commitment, that we better really mean it. We better really mean it. It should remind us that words matter. And then Jesus turns to retaliation. He he takes a well-known law that was was set up to enforce justice, to ensure that a punishment would would actually fit the crime. It's a law that came out of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, uh, and it mirrored other civil laws of the day as well. And the idea is that it's it's human nature to want to retaliate, to get even or to even uh, issue payback. Whenever we've been wronged, we, we see this all the time in sports, right? Have any of you been watching spring training baseball? Yeah, thanks. I got one. Perfect. Um, so, so every time the Astros play in a different park, they're booed. Remember the Astros caught up in the, the cheating scandal? I'm, I'm going easy here, Ed. Um, got caught up. The teams won. Ed's a big Astros fan, so don't hold it against him. Did I just out you in front of church? I'm sorry. Yeah. so so everybody wants to get even, but it's 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 not just the Astros, really. You plunk a guy with a pitch on my team, you better be expecting one in the ribs from me. It, it that starts in high school. That starts actually like in Pony League, where my where my kids playing. That's he's four. That that get even mentality starts from an early age. You take a cheap shot at my teammate, I'm coming back. I'm coming back to get it. But, but it's so much more than just sports. It's so much more serious than, than just sports. We, we see it with war. We see it with politics. We see it in business. We see it in how we interact with our, our neighbors. And, and Jesus says here, stop the cycle. Be more creative than that. Be more creative. Turn the other cheek. Give the other garment. Go go the other mile Give the other loan. I had a, a high school history teacher. She taught uh, U.S. history. My favorite teacher in high school, named Mrs. Henderson. Uh, Mrs. Henderson had a, a very difficult life, where she lost a daughter, and um, the person who murdered her daughter was was on uh, was in jail. She would go to visit her daughter's murderer. Weekly, weekly she said she forgave him what I, I, I. she was the teacher that, that sponsored our, our faith club and she would she would talk about it in the faith club at school yeah what what stop the cycle be creative That's what Jesus is, is saying here what what was it actually look like in our world today if if our churches were full of people committed to doing just that what what would it what would it look like and, and lastly J- jesus says you've heard what it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you jesus takes the concept of retaliation one step further love your en- enemies pray for those who persecute you now, Pastor John's going to unpack these a little bit more next week, but but Jesus is taking a, a common Old Testament teaching that called the people of God to stay away from those who are considered to be godless, to to even hate them, in saying it's a new day. It's it's a new day. You you need to read the scripture through a different lens now. It's not just about your friends, the people you invite to be a part of your community. The way you live your life together, it matters for, for everyone. Even the people that you traditionally see as enemies. So Jesus ends the, the, this list of, of difficult commands with a seemingly impossible charge. Be perfect. Easy, right? Hey, be perfect. Because your heavenly father is Perfect. And I, I don't know that the reason I underline that word is, is is I don't know that the the idea of perfection paints the, the full picture of what Jesus is is getting at here. In Luke's version of this line, uh, Jesus says, "Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful." And, and another way to translate this this idea of perfection um, is is to be completely mature. To be completely mature. So so for Jesus, mature people seek reconciliation. Mature people fight off lust and fight off infidelity. Mature people commit to the truth and don't seek retribution when they're wronged. They even love their enemies. They even love their enemies. It's a tall task. But if we're to be a community shaped by God's grace, driven by God's love, we need to commit to this sort of work, to to be a little different, to work toward being a a mature people. We're never going to be a perfect church. got some news for you. We're never going to be a perfect church. It's the old adage that, that, that churches are made as hospitals for sinners, not a museum for saints. But we can be a community of broken people constantly following Jesus, constantly working, constantly trying to grow, constantly taking what we've heard, many of us heard for a long, long time, and saying, how do these words bring life into our community? Let's pray. Gracious God, we we long to be the people that you've created us to be. Lord, help us as individuals, as a church community, to take steps to live into that calling each and every day. We pray these things in your name. Amen.